This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Thirteen members of two militia groups who were preparing to kidnap and possibly kill me. I knew this job would be hard. But I'll be honest, I never could have imagined anything like this. This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, the United States of America is no stranger to political violence, but the resilience of its institutions has somehow prevailed. Data shows that in recent years, most terrorist violence in the United States has come from right-wing extremists. Only the other day, a militia group was busted by the FBI as they got close to acting on a plan to kidnap the governor of Michigan and overthrow the state government. And just today, the International Crisis Group in a report says, quote, as the U.S. presidential election approaches, the ingredients for unrest are present. The electorate is polarized. Both sides frame the stakes as existential. Violent actors could disrupt the process and protracted contestation is possible. President Donald Trump's often incendiary rhetoric suggests he will more likely stoke than calm tensions, unquote. And remember, while in most other countries it is a bit difficult to get your hands on weapons, in the United States, per capita gun ownership is the highest in the world. Militias can legally acquire vast quantities of small arms. Also remember, in the first presidential debate, President Donald Trump was put on the spot by the moderator to condemn white supremacists and eventually managed to only say, proud boys stand back and stand by, a comment that was celebrated by the right-wing group, the Proud Boys. So to discuss the risk of violence in the days ahead, we are joined by Vasavjit Banerjee, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Mississippi State University, and Colin Clark, Senior Research Fellow at the Sufan Center. Dr. Clark, Professor Banerjee, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. So Dr. Clark, if I may start with you, is the risk of violence going forward more acute in the current political environment? And what should we be watching out for? What kind of groups? Yeah, I think there's no question that in the current political environment, uh, there's, a, there's a very acute uh, potential for violence. I wrote about this just yesterday for the Brookings Institution uh, with, with Daniel Byman, professor at Georgetown. Uh, and we, we touched upon some of the same things you mentioned in your introduction, which is uh, very high levels of polarization, feelings on both sides that um, you know their opponent, their opponent's victory is an existential threat. Um, extremely high uh, gun ownership, right? And that's actually surged uh, during the pandemic. You know, we've had record high gun sales and ammunition sales, and you know the president is the accelerant on on top of all this. His rhetoric has been divisive. It's been incendiary. You know, deliberately so, um, and he has basically kind of stoked the flames um, and amplified tensions as we approach this election now just, um, you know, right around the corner. So I think a lot of people are rightfully concerned. Law enforcement is, is on edge. Uh, and I think there's a range of groups from across the spectrum from, uh, you know, from the far left to the far right. I, I'm more concerned with the far right uh, because the data shows that you know, to date, they've just been far more uh, dangerous and lethal. Is the prospect of poll watchers, potentially armed poll watchers, a worry? Would it amount to voter intimidation, uh, Dr. Clark? Yeah, there's no question that's not a good idea, particularly if, at a, at a bare minimum, it's intimidation 
Um, if these individuals are showing up armed with AR-15s, uh, they're doing more than just watching. And the president's already kind of laid the groundwork by saying the uh, election is rigged. If he loses, the Democrats stole it. So that's just not helpful. Uh, you know, it's extremely counterproductive. Uh, and, and I think he, you know, deserves direct blame if there are incidents that result because he, you know, he's essentially telling people to go. He's, he's you know, egging on his supporters to go to the polls. So it's just, you know, it, it seems to get worse every day. Um, and I think, you know, the stakes are the stakes are high for November 3rd. Dr. Banerjee, you have written recently about the prospect of rural rebellion. You wrote, uh, and I quote, the preconditions for insurgencies are already present. Can you walk us through your reading of that situation? You see, uh, for me, there was a lot of work done on polarization, on grievances, etc. Um, but there was not much of a work done on what I call resource mobilization and opportunity structures. Like what, there are grievances all over the world. Many populations have them, but not many rebel uh, armed rebellions. And I wanted to see if those conditions are there, those actual you know, conditions. And Dr. Clark hits on some of those conditions, the availability of weapons, the availability of funding. These groups are not uh, just, uh, you know, they're just not independent and functioning locally. They're connected to church groups in some cases, uh, which are legitimate and function overground, which is again, quite common in insurgencies elsewhere in the world. The uh, availability of rough terrain, places like Montana, for example, uh, where, you know, it's quite difficult to actually control uh, rural insurgencies by small numbers, you know, groups, small groups. Uh, political cover, uh, yes, uh, again, Dr. Clark mentioned this, the president himself, is providing political cover and uh, finally there is uh, weak and complicit local law enforcement again we see as with the sheriffs in michigan uh, they are refusing to tamp down on certain uh, sort of violations in terms of during the elections uh, we there was an interview with the local sheriff uh, who expressed sympathy for the group that was busted by the fbi for trying to kidnap the governor and there have been work, uh, Kathleen Bellew has written about infiltration of local law enforcement. And uh, there is also the presence of uh, army veterans. Now, the last bit, the army veteran bit is very concerning because uh, a lot of the insurgency work talks about state strength and state capacity uh, in terms of, you know, fielding an army, fin financing an army and, and a strong army that's well equipped, etc. But it doesn't matter if you if your army is sent to quash a rebellion and that threatens small group cohesion in the army in other words if you are afraid that members of your army will defect or will refuse to fire upon their kith and kin or people that they sympathize and that provides another situation which weakens the state and the militias already know that now finally i'd like to say the militias pre-existed the trump administration they have proliferated, gained strength and numbers during the Trump administration. And I actually believe that they will continue beyond the Trump administration. The elections may not have the effect of simply dissolving them. Thank you. 
Interesting. Now, this is not only about homegrown militias, but about the general environment. And we're talking about a population that is vulnerable to malign outside influence. We know it has been proven that in 2016, Russian disinformation operations manipulated American public opinion to create chaos. And this time around, we've been warned it's not only Russia, but potentially Iran and China, which are seen as threats. Dr. Clark, could you speak to that a bit? Is that a factor? Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, we know the Russians are very active, um, you know, doing some of the same things they were doing. Uh, but now you have to add in, uh, as you noted, China and Iran into the fray. Uh, this is part and parcel of, you know, an increase in influence operations by near peer competitors. Uh, we're no longer um, in a world where the United States is the lone superpower um, and acts with near impunity. You know, there are challengers. And they're finding ways to act in what some scholars call the gray zone, that area in between peace and war, that area is that, that, that's more ambiguous. Uh, election meddling for the Russians is a pretty significant return on investment uh, for the, the amount of money they spend. So um, I, I think this is just a fact of life. It's something we're going to have to learn how to deal with to mitigate. It's not going to go away. Um, these actors are likely to grow more sophisticated as they kind of learn what works, what doesn't work, as they refine their methods and their approach. And then we're gonna have kind of other actors, you know, get into the mix too, um, you know, countries that are, you know, an echelon below, right? Middling powers and even non-state actors. Dr. Banerjee, could you also speak to that a bit? And could you also uh, sort of uh, touch on potential international links of right-wing extremist groups? And because we have the, this phenomenon in parts of Europe as well. Yes, on uh, on the internet, there are these channels and so on and so forth and a dark web ostensibly. I'm not a dark web specialist, uh, uh, but there are links. They talk to one another. Uh, I, they have ideological exchanges. They uh, talk to one another about, another about tactics. However, I think that the US militias are outside of ideology, which cannot be accounted for. And you can just, you know, pick up a book at a library and read it uh, and, and sort of exchange commiserate, but they are their own thing and they have pre-existed. Now, do they find greater legitimacy because people in Western Europe, for example, in places in Scandinavia and so on and so forth, there are these other counterparts, uh, maybe, but I, I would venture to say that in terms of militias, they are their own thing and they've sort of they if they ratchet up it's based on their own understanding uh, of what they think is the path for america to take um so that's that's my little bit on it and i'm, I'm i know i'm a bit of a contrarian on it thank you okay so finally a quick one for both of you now there's you know one frequently hears talk of or mention of civil war from you know pundits on tv anchors on tv and so forth they talk about a cold civil war i somehow get the feeling this is a bit of a wild theory from people who have not actually seen what a real civil war is like and in many parts of the world if you look at civil wars it's basically geographic i mean it's, it's ethnic religious and geographic it's very well defined whereas in america American society, especially in metropolitan areas, is quite integrated. So it's difficult to see um, how a civil war could actually happen. So it seems far-fetched. Uh, yet, as you know, you said, not nowhere in the world is a population as well armed as in America, where the first response to any crisis seems to be to buy a gun. So is this concern valid? Uh, perhaps, Dr. Clark, uh, you first on that. 
Yeah, I mean, clearly we hear this term a lot. We hear it thrown around. Um, while I was at the Rand Corporation, um, I was one of the leaders of a study where we, we looked at all insurgencies from the end of World War II to 2009, 71 in total, um, and, and, and did a variety of um, analyses um, using various methodolo methodological techniques. So I'm well versed in the study of insurgency and civil war. I think it is a bit of hyperbole to say that we're going to be facing any kind of sustained um, civil war. One of the terms that I do think is relevant from the kind of civil war and insurgency literature is this uh, phrase ungoverned spaces. Because I think on a very micro level, we do have these parts of the country um, that are maybe not ungoverned, but alternatively governed. Uh, and, and you have these large compounds that kind of militias, uh, extremely well-armed, well-trained militias take hold of. So I, I view this as less of an issue of a civil war, but I do think it's a, it's a distinct possibility and, and quite likely that we'll have incidents similar to Ruby Ridge or Waco, um, you know, large standoffs between federal agents and militia groups, um, you know, potentially more Oklahoma cities in our future, which is really, you know, it, it's a dire uh, prediction, but, but I do think it's certainly more likely now than it was even just a couple of years ago. Mm, that is a dire prediction. Dr. Banerjee, a uh, parting shot from you on that? I could not agree more. I mean, that's, that's what's going to happen. But what I want to take this is the long-run political effects of that. Essentially, it's going to be quite difficult for uh, a national government, the federal government, to say we are going to expend billions of dollars stationing the military and National Guard or whatever in order to take over these ungoverned spaces. So a uh, uh, sort of a modus vivendi, a sort of a live and let live type agreement may be in the offing where sort of these ungoverned rural spaces, the national federal government sort of accepts them and tells them as long as you don't disturb the overall sort of democratic political order and do not take violent uh, action, uh, you can sort of do, do, some, you know, do what you want out there. Now, this is very similar to some of the things that have happened, for example, in northeastern India, in the northwestern frontier provinces, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in Pakistan, in parts of Burma, so on and so forth. So the government can accept uh, that there will be these non-state um, localized militia groups, violent actors who have local orders which would mean in some ways uh, a return to what I believe, especially in states where these orders are close to the political establishment or have sympathy from the political establish establishment, a return to what the pre-1950s or pre-1960s American order, in which case there were parts of the United States, especially in the South, uh, and I would say in the South, which had different civil rights different political rights for non-white citizens, uh, different political order, one party dominated political order, and uh, they were allowed to retain that because the cost of uh, coercing them uh, became so high in the 1890s and the early 1900s. So it won't be a novel situation in some ways. It would be a return to a pre-1960s status quo. Uh, in a different way with a different set of states. So for example, Virginia would not be part of that uh, because it's demographically has changed. Uh, Texas may not be part of that. 
but you may have other states that might join in, for example, Indiana or Wisconsin. I do not have the data, but I would strongly suspect that it would be a different combination of states, depending on terrain, depending on the political order, depending on the presence of militia groups, etc. Okay, Dr. Banerjee, Dr. Clark, thank you again. Fascinating discussion. So the United States of America is heading for its most fraught presidential election in its modern history. And it is not going to end on November the 3rd. Whoever wins, the, the divisions will still be prevailing in the US and we'll have to watch very carefully to see how they are managed. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Kosh. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.